You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Today we're going to be using kind of the example of Daniel in regards to the way in which we're called to act and present ourselves towards those in our culture and in the society in which we live. Or rather, how as exiles, how we're to accommodate and honorably serve in Babylon. And uh, this is a theme that continues to present itself uh, throughout the exploits of Daniel. But uh, as I said, this morning we're actually going to draw the lesson not from Daniel, but from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, this is basically our theme passage for the series, because while it's not from Daniel, it, it does perfectly describe Daniel's example as an exile, and also teaches us how we're to follow that example as God's people and as ambassadors of Jesus in the world. And it's actually, that's what's printed on the top of the banner. I think Blair mentioned that last week. But, um, so it's our theme passage, and we're going to be studying that this morning. And in fact, I wouldn't actually be surprised if, if Peter had the pages of Daniel open before him, or at least on his mind as he wrote this letter to his fellow believers. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 9 to 18, we're going to read that. All right, he writes to them, to the Christians. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Today might get a little controversial. I don't know. We'll see. On that note, let's pray again. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church, for your spirit, for your presence. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive this word, that you would remind us that as exiles in a strange land, that we have a call to represent you and glorify you and proclaim you. And I pray that you would teach us how to do that in a way that's honorable, in a way that's loving. As we go through this message this morning, I pray that you help us receive it, that it would change us. 
for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So my, my wife and I don't have to do this as much anymore, but when, when our kids were a lot younger, whenever we were invited to somebody's house for, to hang out or dinner or whatever, um, use the car ride over to remind our kids their manners, right? Parents know what I'm talking about. You're driving there, you know, and then you're like, all right, kids, uh, when we get there, don't forget to say please and thank you or no thank you and, and make sure you politely eat whatever they serve you. I don't care if you don't like it. And don't make that choking sound you make, please. And, and, and also be sure you ask for permission to leave the table. Bring your dishes to the sink. Ask which bathroom you're allowed to use if you have to go. You know, right? We want you on your best behavior, kids, okay? Like that's, that's the conversation we have on the way to, to anyone's house. And, and we do this, and we did this because we recognize that in going to someone else's house, we, need, we needed to acknowledge and respect not only their rules and their requests, but, but also them as people, right? Them as people. It's only polite to be polite and to, to have some manners in exchange for their hospitality. We all know that, right? And, and in that situation as well, our kids' behavior is also a reflection of us as parents. And so reminding them of their manners is basically us saying to them, like, make us look bad, okay? Be on your best behavior. Uh, but, but either way, we, we all know that when we go to someone else's home, it's their home. Not our home. It's their home. So, so there are things that you just don't do, things you just don't say. Like, I mean, you wouldn't insult their cooking. You might talk about it later, right? And be like, wow, that was terrible, right? You don't, in their face, not to their face, right? Uh, you don't mock their, their decor or rummage their fridge. Rummage, does this keep cutting out? Hmm. Right? You, you wouldn't rummage through their fridge, right? You wouldn't put, put, put your feet up on their table or, or complain that you're having burgers instead of steak, right? Unless you're a jerk, right? You just wouldn't do that stuff. You'd want to respect them and even bless them and honor them in their space, in their house. In our own homes, we can do whatever we want. We can put up our feet. We can go in any room. We can make a mess and clean it up the next day if we, if we want. We can walk around naked even. But definitely not in someone else's house. Unless that is, you don't want to get invited over again. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. Say, you're lactose intolerant. But when you go over to someone's house, they decide to serve you a glass of milk. Then, of course, at that point, you should be offended and outraged that they would have the audacity to do that. Which is why you have every right at that point to pick up that glass of milk and throw it in their face. No? That, based on the way we react on social media, that seems appropriate. Um, I guess you could just politely ask for a glass of water instead. Right? We, we all know that's not the way that, that we should treat others, and it's definitely not how we should behave in our own homes, much less in somebody else's. And my point is that as Christians, as strangers and exiles in this world... We're currently living in someone else's house, so to speak. Don't get me wrong, God's still sovereign over all the earth. Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, absolutely. But within the context of this sinful world and secular culture that we're living in, 
as we wait for Jesus to, to return and restore all things to the way it should be, this isn't our home. Or at the very least, this isn't what our home is supposed to look like. As citizens of God's kingdom, we're strangers and exiles in a foreign place. And so, in a similar way to how my children's actions also reflect Audrey and I when we're guests at someone else's house, as exiles of God's kingdom in this world, we're representatives or temples of Jesus. And as such, we're called to a certain code of conduct that's becoming of him. As it says, they'll know him by our love. They'll, outside of the church, know him, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, by our, the church's, love. It's pretty simple. Over the past couple of weeks, we've already read through Daniel chapter 1 a couple of times and and One of the things Daniel does, which I think we usually just gloss over, I used to gloss over it, but studying it in-depthly for two months makes me notice some things. Um, But one of the things is that when he's offered the king's food and wine and then determines in his heart not to defile himself by it, probably for kosher reasons or, or maybe to maintain a reliance on God, I don't know why, but what he does next is, is actually quite important. He asks for permission. This is, this is huge. I know it sounds, sounds really weird, but he asks for permission. Daniel 1 verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. This means that he didn't demand He didn't complain. He didn't get offended. He didn't resist in some form of hunger strike. He didn't pick up his religious beliefs along with the steak and wine from the king and throw it in the chief eunuch's face. He politely asked for permission. This is so important for us to learn. Because it's such a simple yet great example of how to live out the tension presented to us in First Peter. To both abstain from that which battles against our soul, while at the same time keeping our conduct honorable among others. It's by doing both, loving God and loving others, not one or the other, that we proclaim the excellencies of God. And so by simply asking permission, Daniel's able to do both. He gets the kosher diet that he asks for, while also showing respect and honor to the chief eunuch in charge of him. Because he seems to be acknowledging that as an exile in a foreign place, this isn't his house. He's subject to Babylon. And so he acts, so he acts respectfully. My guess is that if Daniel got offended or angrily demanded to have different food or forced everyone else to eat the same food as him, then he would have been denied that request, right? But his respectful action awarded him favor of the chief eunuch and ultimately God's blessing in the midst of it, just by asking for permission, just by being polite. 
And it's safe to assume that Daniel lives his whole life with this conduct of humble respect and honor. Daniel 1, 20 to 21, at the, at the end of, of chapter 1, it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And then it says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, while kings rose and fell in Babylon, Daniel managed to honorably and wisely serve for 70 years. And remember, these were often corrupt, unjust, and ungodly kings. Some might think, shouldn't he have, have rebelled and resisted serving the emperor like Luke Skywalker did when he faced Emperor Palpatine in episode 6? You're all thinking that, right? But it's not that black and white. And... and we're not part of a rebellion. In actuality, we're, we're meant to be beacons of a battle that's already won through Jesus' death and resurrection. As verse 16 says, we're to live as if we're free, because we are free in Christ. And so we're to live as servants of God, as ambassadors of God. That's our role. And Daniel sees himself as a servant of God in this place, in Babylon. Which is why it goes on to say in 1 Peter 2, 17 to 18, honor everyone. Everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then he gets even more specific. Servants, be subject to even your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Be subject to your masters. Respect them. The just and the unjust. Why? Because their good works are not ultimately for them. It's for the glory of God. It's to be beacons of Christ's victory and grace. It's so that God can use our good works as a way to shine his light in the darkness and give us opportunities to proclaim his gospel. Ephesians 6, 7 says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. We're to serve everyone as if we're serving the Lord himself. Because we are. Of course, sometimes, yes, there's going to be moments of exception in which we'll have to stand our ground no matter what. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us what that might look like when they refuse to bow down to an idol. We'll talk about that in five months when we get to it. I'm just kidding. won't be that long. But realistically, if we're, if we're actually honoring and loving our neighbor as ourselves, those moments, those exceptions will be few and far between. Too often, I think, as Christians, we're the ones who create more tension and start battles with the secular world, battles that we really don't need to and shouldn't be fighting. Unfortunately, many people in the Western world know more about what we're against than what we're for, according to research. And on that end, why would they listen to good news or anything at all from what they see as a bunch of offended extremists who don't like them? Let's not forget, our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood anyway, but against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. If something offends us, then we should pray about it. 
And let's not let's also not forget that in our desire to stand up for what's godly, we're not dealing with ideologies only. We're dealing with people. Real people. So be nice. Be polite. So yes, following Jesus can create some uneasy moments and tensions with those who who disagree or don't like us, but we shouldn't unnecessarily seek out or create those moments by, by offending others or being offended just because we disagree. I mean, yes, each person has to stick to their own convictions, but above all, we can't forget that we're called to live in a way that honors God and simultaneously honors our neighbor. So yes, we may be persecuted by the world for following Jesus and living for God. Good. But if we're being persecuted and called out because we're jerks and acting sinfully or pharisaically or judgmentally towards others, if we're using our freedom as a cover for evil, then that's on us. And it isn't that type of persecution to boast about or display around our necks as a badge of pride. God's not impressed when we're reviled by the world for misrepresenting him. 1 Peter 2:20 20 to 21 says for what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure what credit is it is it does nothing but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god for to this you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps It does us no credit to be hated for being jerks or hateful ourselves. But if we suffer for doing good, God can and will use that for his glory, as we'll see throughout the narrative of of Daniel and, of course, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But in regards to suffering for our faith, again, in the 70 years, 70 years Daniel served in Babylon, a city that stood against everything he stood for, he actually only has one lion's den moment as far as we know only one in 70 years that's telling right only once does he have to fully resist in fact he was actually just set up by those who were jealous of him because he was so honorable and wise in his conduct to the king and in the end if, if you've ever read the whole story it's his accusers who are the ones silenced and punished for their false accusations and deceit. Second Peter 2, 13-15, again says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we see Dan- Daniel honored the emperor. He acquiesced to the emperor's justice. And ultimately, by doing good, by living honorably, it was Daniel's false accusers who were silenced in the end. Christians, generally speaking, need to take heed of this and in turn stop giving the world legitimate reasons to hate us and hate God and throw us in the lion's den. Yes, we should weep over immorality. Yes, we should stand up for our beliefs and and confront evil and injustice. But we need to watch our posture as we do it. 
or we're no better than clanging cymbals. Remember, it's love that covers a multitude of sins. It's love and honor which silences our accusers and the foolish. And it's only by the Spirit, through knowing Jesus, that sinful hearts are renewed and transformed. But it's judgment and hate that give people a reason and a voice to hate back. As theologian Timothy Keller shared on his Instagram feed last night, because he knew I was preaching on it. I don't have it up there because I, I didn't have it prepared, but uh, he says, you can love without agreeing with someone, and you can disagree without hating them. Besides, if we want to influence the world with the gospel, we have to be invited to the table. On that end, like Daniel's story reminds us over and over again, we're, we're given a seat at the table in the guest house and also invited back only when we learn to honor and respect and especially listen before we speak, first and foremost, to everyone else who's also seated at the table with us. And to that end, if we do choose to do this, if we do choose to, to honor and respect our neighbors and our leaders and our institutions and our bosses and our teachers and our city and our nation, seek their good if we seek their good and show that we're for them, not against them, it'll probably, it'll probably go a lot better for us too. In Jeremiah 29, 4-7, it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is written to the exiles in Babylon. It says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. If the city prospers, you too will prosper. If this sinful city prospers, you too will prosper. So pray for it. Seek its peace and prosperity. Make roots. Build relationships with unbelievers. Keep our conduct honorable in the public square. Increase our presence in the community. Invest in it economically. Build houses. Start businesses. On that note, and since Christmas season is coming, I might suggest that we, as, as the gate, support the local businesses downtown. They need that support. And we love being their neighbors. And unfortunately, some of them are closing shop. But anyways, if the city prospers, we will prosper. And yes, again, don't get me wrong. We should stick to our own faith and convictions without compromise. 
Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We need to be resilient in faith. We must obey God rather than men, as Peter and John declared to the Sanhedrin in Acts. We shouldn't be afraid to live differently or stand out from the ideologies of the culture. But at the same time, again, Peter instructs us in, in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visita- day of visitation. In other words, for the glory of God, we should be ready and willing to accommodate those in Babylon. On this, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons write from their book, Good Faith. Accommodation means you choose a countercultural way. Your life stands out as odd and curious, tethered to a set of truths. This puts you at odds with the culture's conventional wisdom. You are confident enough, however, to live alongside those with whom you disagree. For good faith Christians, accommodating those who we oppose is critical to maintaining a faithful Christian witness. We must support the right of every person to live by his or her conscience. This means finding ways to accommodate one another, even when, no, especially when, we hold an opposing view. I think one of the biggest hiccups or hesitations for us as Christians in following through with this is that we're often confused or unsure of whether or not helping, befriending, or or even accommodating someone with a sinful lifestyle means that we're then condoning their beliefs and actions. We think, well, if if I'm friendly to this person who I disagree with, doesn't mean I'm I'm agreeing with, with the way that they're living. And we're conflicted. That that's a, that's a real thing, right? For example, most of us have probably heard of that bakery in the States run by Christians who refused to bake that cake for a same-sex wedding, right? Have you all heard of that story? Yeah? They were sued for it, and it was a big deal. I mean, it's their bakery business. They should probably have the right to bake a cake for whoever they want, but that's a different issue. But my question is, if they had done it, if they had baked the cake... Would that have actually meant that they're condoning same-sex marriage and compromising their convictions? Would it have actually meant that? Or alternatively, maybe baking them a cake might have actually shown their willingness to lovingly accommodate and honor their neighbors. Or put it this way, Daniel faithfully serves King Nebuchadnezzar and other extremely immoral and tyrant kings for 70 years. Does that mean he's supporting or condoning everything they do? Of course not. As we'll learn, serving and honoring faithfully actually gives him opportunity after opportunity to display and proclaim the faithfulness and glory of God to them. And King Nebuchadnezzar actually changes his ways. So, in my opinion, loving and honoring someone doesn't equate to condoning their sin. In fact, Jesus' love for us while we were sinners actually conquered our sin. Is this making people squirm in their seats? I don't know. But the self-righteous Pharisees certainly squirmed in their seats when Jesus discipled and dined with prostitutes, thieves, and tax collectors, and then died for them at the cross. Jesus also made them squirm in their seats when he told them the story of the Good Samaritan. 
afraid of guys dying on the side of the road. People walk past them. Religious people walk past them. Jewish religious people walk past them. And then a good Samaritan is the one who ends up helping him. And about that, Kinnaman and Lyons again, right? And this is kind of a long, long quote, but it's from their book. I had to read it to you guys um, because it's really good. They write this about the Good Samaritan story. Water first. They write, Jesus offers us a vivid picture of being countercultural in his parable of the Good Samaritan recorded in Luke 10, 30 to 37. After 2,000 years of Christians reading, preaching, and telling this story to children, it has morphed from a countercultural shockwave into a nice morality tale about being kind to others. But the day he told it, in response to the question, who is my neighbor? It was nothing less than a category redefining mind shift for his listeners. Minds were blown. Jesus' response to the question was a far-fetched tale of two men divided by race, religion, and politics brought together when one of them came with the biblical idea of good to the side of the road where the other lay dying, restoring the broken man in the ditch, which is all very wonderful and life-admiring and made-for-TV movie, except the good man is not us. The one who brings orderly, right, abundant, generous, beautiful, and flourishing goodness to a broken man is the person we would least expect. To a Christian audience of today, Jesus might have said the Good Samaritan is a bisexual, atheist, burlesque dancer with one of those Darwin amphibians eating a Jesus fish bumper stickers. I actually saw something that looked just like that on my way to church this morning. had two stickers there. And the broken man is us. It's really not a very nice story. In my opinion, and and generally speaking, again, too often in in our attempt to push our, our beliefs or our morality or our truth onto the world, onto others, in our proverbial witch hunts, we've forgotten our own sinful past and our own need to be healed and picked up from the side of the road. And in so doing, we've exchanged humility and and kindness for prideful and self-righteous arrogance, for forgetting our call to love and help and lift up and listen to others despite their beliefs or sinful lifestyles or religion or sexual orientation or political leanings. The Good Samaritan helped, paid for, and restored that broken man despite their political, social, and religious differences. Jesus was on point here. Yet, it seems like many Christians seem to just even have a problem with associating with unbelievers especially those seen as living immoral or ungodly especially those seen as immoral or ungodly like i don't want to hang out with them i don't want to associate with them about this the apostle paul writes in 1 corinthians 5:9 to 12 
He says to them, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. They seem to have been confused about what he was talking about, so he's clarifying to them. So he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. This part's important. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There's a clear difference here in how we're to associate with those within the church and those outside of it. Our concern, it says, in fact, should lie within the church to watch out for for false and unrepentant Christians. That should be our concern. On the flip side, there's a clear reminder in this passage that it's not up to us to judge those outside the church because the scripture reminds us elsewhere as well, that's for God alone to do. And we're going to see that in, in the story of Daniel as well. But then it's, in fact, then it says we're in fact permitted and in the example of Jesus' own ministry, even encouraged to associate, not join in with them in their sin, of course, but to associate with those outside the church, including, but not limited to, the greedy, sexual, immoral, swindlers, and idolaters. Besides, he says, we'd have, to, we'd have to leave the world to avoid associating with them anyways. And we can't leave the world. We're here for a reason. We're a people of God. A holy nation saved by Christ, set apart for God, and positioned as strangers and exiles in this world so that we can declare the excellencies of him who called us out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. We're here to bring light into the darkness. We're here as servants of God. So make no mistake, there's definitely a call for the church to remain resilient in faith, to abstain from that which battles against our souls and that which will defile us as lights of Christ. But it's also a call to simultaneously keep our conduct outside the church honorable and loving to all, to everyone, everyone. And this, this can include praying for and encouraging our government, whether you voted for them or not. This can include building relationships with those in the LGBTQ community, if you get the opportunity. This can include working for your government with integrity, or sorry, with, for your company with integrity. Whether your boss is nice or, or, or not, whether they're greedy or generous. This can include simple acts of honor like Shoveling your Muslim neighbor's sidewalk or sharing vegetables from your garden with your militantly atheist co-worker. The list goes on. As the Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So let our love, honor, and good works silence the foolish and the accusers. Let our love honor, and good works 
proclaim the excellencies of God. And in closing, again, 1 Peter 2, 15-17, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you've called us, that you've saved us, that you've rescued us, that you've called us to be set apart and holy. But through Jesus, we're covered in righteousness. Lord, but I pray that you would remind us that that doesn't make us better than the world around us. But that makes us positioned to love the world around us. To bring healing to the world around us. To honor to serve, to represent you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for when we've forgotten that. When we've acted out in offense or judgment towards the world. I pray that you would help us as your people, to to shine your light in the way that you've called us to do it in this world. That as exiles, we can be like Daniel, who in simply being polite and asking for permission, was able to influence the kingdom of Babylon. So Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and how to manage the tension of of sticking with our convictions, but also loving the world. And Lord, as we do that, as we love you and as we love our neighbors, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would give us opportunities to proclaim your gospel, and that the world would know you by our love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.